clinical specialist at UCLA Integrated Substance Abuse Programs. We have a research lab at UCLA that studies the science around substance use, how substances affect the brain and the body, how that interacts with the client's mental health and physical health and what sorts of treatment interventions work. Um, but in particular, we have a, a grant from SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration. It's called the Pacific Southwest Addiction Technology Transfer Center. So our job at the PSATTC really is to take that science and take that research and to share it with providers, um, to give providers science-based um, information, tools, clinical skills that they can use in, in their everyday work with their clients. Um, and we've been working with the Depart LA County's Department of Mental Health in different capacities for over a decade now, working really collaboratively with providers at DMH, at the directly operated clinics, at the contract providers, with the administration, doing all kinds of trainings related to co-occurring disorders. So we're really excited about this series of trainings and um, also a series of consultation calls that we'll also just briefly mention at the end as well. This particular training is about cognitive behavioral, behavioral therapy, CBT, but really with a focus on how to connect, apply it to substance use disorders. Um, so what I'm going to do in today's training, in addition to talking about some of the fundamentals, is we're also going to highlight how many of you um, have are using CBT currently. You have a lot of skills already in, in using CBT for various mental health conditions. Um, one of the goals of today's trainings is to highlight how you can use those existing skills already and apply them in the substance use context. Um, Here's our materials. Here's our general roadmap of what we're gonna talk about together. Today's training um, is a part of a series. We did a training last Friday on substance use disorders 101 that really focused on substance use disorders as brain diseases, how addiction affects the brain and how that affects functioning. Um, today's training is a nice follow-up to that because it's taking a look at substance use disorders from a different framework, because while yes, addiction is absolutely a brain disease, there are structural and functional changes that happen in the brain that doesn't tell the full story. And there's really important learning and behavioral processes that also contribute to substance use disorders. So we're gonna start off talking about those, how different aspects of behavioral learning contribute to addiction. That's also gonna start our conversation around, what do you do about it? How do you address substance use disorders and the clients that, you, that you're serving? Um, and so we'll talk a little bit about some of the foundational CBT and relapse prevention principles that can be helpful for, for educating and informing your clients about working together on. Um, then we'll talk about some general uh, how to deliver a CBT session, how to structure it, what is the role as a CBT provider and how you approach the conversation with the client. And then we'll practice with some worksheets as well. Um, the first worksheet that I'm gonna show you is called the functional analysis. It breaks down what we call the five W's. It's basically a structured way to explore substance use, how it affects them, what are the patterns that precede it. Um, for those of you using CBT for mental health, it's very, very similar to a thought record. Um, but we're going to connect it directly to substance use disorders, and we'll talk about how to apply it. 
We'll also practice and walk you through a couple other types of worksheets that can be helpful um, working with clients with substance use disorders. Um, that's our general roadmap. Um, that's where we're gonna go in this afternoon. But I wanna get some of your, um, I know CBT, so many, if not all of you have heard of it before, but what are some of the most important things that come to mind when you think about cognitive behavioral therapy? Like what are your, the, the, the key words, the key important concepts that come up in your head when you think about CBT? Thoughts, there's cognitive distortions that can affect how people think and how they feel, what emotions that can come up. Um, those automatic thoughts are often um, connected to focuses core beliefs. One of the things we're gonna talk about with CBT is it's all about balance and there's different things that you balance. One of them is being an empathetic counselor, which really does lean on a lot of those motivational interviewing skills and that gets balanced with being a good teacher. So that's a, absolutely a really important point. We wanna make sure that the treatment goals are appropriate for them as an individual, what's realistic, what's achievable, um, what are goals that are important to them that are connected to what their values are and what they care about. So yeah, meeting people where they're at in terms of what are they willing to do, what is important to them and how is it connected to, to their treatment goals, absolutely. How negative emotions affect behaviors and thoughts, absolutely. There is this relationship, a linkage between how we think how we feel and how we behave and they're all interconnected. Absolutely. Awesome, yeah, you highlighted a lot of these, these foundations that are important for a CBT applied in all kinds of different contexts, awesome. Um, what, what today's training is for, for all of you who have a lot of knowledge about CBT already, we're gonna help you to apply it to substance use disorder specifically. Um, it's a, one of our main focuses. And for those of you with less knowledge about CBT, we're going to teach you some of the foundations to get you started on just the fundamentals. All right. Um, just to build on this and to reinforce some of these um, concepts here, one of the things about CBT in terms of meeting people where they are is that there's a lot of flexibility in how you use it, what the treatment goals are, and where and when you can use it. Part of it is you can use it early in recovery, early in the treatment process to help folks in those early days to either cut down on their substance use or to work towards abstinence. Um, CBT inherent in that statement is also flexible in terms of what the goals are. CBT is not abstinence is the only option and that's, that's it, end of discussion. CBT is flexible. Reductions in use is a step in the right direction in its progress. Um, for clients who are willing to do that, awesome. If clients want to work towards total abstinence, that's also awesome. We can work with their either treatment goal. Um, oftentimes, small reductions in use are the stepping stone towards abstinence. Um, but like I said, CBT provides foundational skills early in recovery when people are just starting to think about making a change, especially to start taking action towards reducing their use. But they can also be used later on in treatment and to sustain change. Behavior change is hard. 
relapses often part of the process. CBT also has a lot of um, tools to help folks maintain that abstinence or maintain that behavior change. We call it relapse prevention. Um, one of the, the first worksheet that I'm going to show you has um, ways that you can apply it in both, both early in recovery and later in the treatment process. But essentially, CBT is going to help us to look at um, dysfunctional emotions, maladaptive behaviors, and cognitive processes. In, in, and today we're going to connect those specifically to substance use. Um, yeah. And like I said, the first worksheet that we're going to show you is the functional analysis, which helps to explore what are the factors that lead to substance use. Because one of the key, key points and key foundations is that substance use isn't random. It doesn't come out of the blue. There are typically patterns, patterns in thoughts, patterns in behaviors, patterns in feelings that often precede and can be predict predictive of substance use in the future. And so it's important to try to figure those out. And we have a specific word that we call those that we'll, we'll, we'll talk about in just a second. And at CBT is all about skill building as well, practicing new skills, uh, mastering it, reinforcing it, also really important. And like many of you mentioned, this cognitive triad is a really important foundation. The, um, this relationship between what we're thinking, what we're feeling, and what we do they're all interconnected. And it's important to help clients become aware of the, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they're doing. And if you make changes in any of these elements, they can lead to changes in the others. Um, so let me just walk you through a real rudimentary example. Um, and then we're gonna connect it to our substance use disorders. So say you started a, a new job. Um, and I know this sounds so strange in COVID times, but it's your first day at a brand new job at a new agency. And you go to introduce yourself to a new coworker or a new colleague and you reach out to shake their hand, which I know also sounds strange right now. Um, Hi, my name is Grant, it's my first day, it's nice to meet you. And they ignore you entirely. They don't shake your hand back, they don't acknowledge you, they just completely ignore you. What thoughts might come up in that moment? Yeah, maybe they don't like me. Um, is disrespectful? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I might be annoyed or irritated. I'm, I might be thinking, sorry, I jumped the gun a little bit there. I might be thinking how rude, how disrespectful. They don't like me. Certainly. I might be feeling rejected. Certainly. I want to go with uh, the second half, like disrespected. How rude, how disrespectful. If those are my thoughts that are coming up, what feelings might that elicit? I might feel anger or dislike towards the person. I might feel hurt, offended, absolutely. And if I'm feeling angry and hurt and offended, it's gonna lead to a particular behavioral response. Uh, depending on my inhibition that day, Maybe I do nothing about it, but maybe I say something snarky back to them if I've had a really bad day or if I'm feeling really angry. Uh, I might be um, certainly not reach out to them again in the future. Um, but what we think, the thoughts affect how we feel and affect how we behave. Now, it's, what are some alternative thoughts that could come up rather than how rude, 
how disrespectful, what alternative thoughts might come up when you go to introduce yourself to a new colleague and they ignore you entirely? Yeah, maybe they were distracted and they didn't hear me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Maybe they just had a bad day and that's why they didn't shake my hand back. They didn't hear me or they're having a bad day. Absolutely. That series of thoughts, oh, they're having a tough day or maybe they didn't hear me is going to lead to a very different emotional reaction. I'm not going to be angry, but I might be, you know, empathetic. I might be uh, more understanding and that's going to lead um, to a very different behavioral response. So what we think affects how we feel and what we do. And it's not just that direction. It's, it really is multi-directional. Say, for example, before I went into the, my new job, I got into a big argument with my spouse and I already was feeling a little bit insecure. I was already feeling a little bit um, like I'm not good enough. If I'm going into that situation with those emotions, that's going to affect my thoughts that come up and also our behaviors. So this is really fundamental um, in, in all types of applications of CBT. Um, we're going to practice applying these in our substance use context specifically because thoughts, feelings, behaviors are integral to substance use. They're often predictable patterns of thinking or feeling or behaviors that come before substance use. And just like you when we talk about this in mental health context, if you help your clients to change or challenge their thoughts about substance use, it can lead to changes in their feelings and their behaviors. If you change your behaviors around substance use, it can lead to changes in your thoughts and in your feelings. And we'll make, I'll make that really concrete in just a moment. Awesome. All right. If you could, through a, a, a raising of your hand or clicking the raise your hand button, how many of you are using CBT with your clients for mental health reasons? CBT for depression, CBT for anxiety, you know, trauma-focused CBT, all kinds of different applications, but for mental health disorders. Awesome. Yeah, nice. A lot of you. Great. Um, I've got a couple questions for you all. Um, because here, when you utilize CBT for, for substance use and mental health, there's a lot that they have in common. A lot of it is really similar, but there's one thing that's really different, and that is really just a matter of timing. That's really a significant difference here. Um, in mental health disorders, oftentimes behavioral strategies and cognitive strategies are used simultaneously. So say you're working with a client who has depression. What are some behavioral strategies based in CBT to help manage depression that you might encourage your clients to engage in? Sure, certainly homework assignments. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if it's kind of their behavioral based, there's activities that you have them engage in. Absolutely. Activity scheduling is a great one. Yeah, behavioral activation. Have them re-engage with old hobbies that they used to have or activities that they used to enjoy. Um, other things are um, reach out to old friends. Um, reach out to family members or people that they used to talk to that maybe they haven't heard from in a while. Um, there's behavioral strategies that are helpful for managing depression. 
Absolutely. Mindfulness, certainly, definitely. At the same, so you might encourage your clients to get busy, re-engage in, in previous activities that they used to enjoy, reach out to friends and family, build social supports. At the same time, you also engage in cognitive strategies. What are some cognitive strategies to manage with depression? You think about your, your interventions to help your clients manage their depression. What are some cognitive strategies? That's absolutely right. You help them to monitor their thoughts, to identify their thoughts. You might have them um, engage in a thought record to try to identify cognitive distortions, identify what their automatic thoughts are, how are those connected to their core beliefs. You teach them ways to reframe those thoughts, uh, to challenge some of the distortions in their thinking. Um, absolutely. There's a lot of cognitive, cognitive restructuring. Yeah, so oftentimes with mental health, these are kind of used simultaneously, behavioral and cognitive together. One key difference with substance use is that it's designed to work, CBT is designed to work with a healing brain. Substance use disorders can cause significant cognitive impairments in thinking and memory and focus, the ability to talk about emotions and feelings fluidly and easily. These are impaired for many people with substance use disorders um, because of changes that happen in the brain and the dopamine and the prefrontal cortex and an overactive amygdala. Um, so, so CBT for substance use is designed to, to work with a healing brain by starting with behavioral strategies first, primarily starting with behavioral strategies. And then you add in the cognitive strategies as the client progresses in, in, in treatment, because the be, doing some of the complex cognitive work can often be very challenging for people in, in substance use recovery in those early days. Um, now, that is an individual, you wanna be thoughtful about the individual that you're working with. Some people who have less severe substance use disorders, their cognitive functioning might be less impacted. So you want to be individualized, but as a general, um, as a general rule, you want to be mindful to start with behavioral strategies first and then engage in some cognitive strategies as they progress. Because so behavioral strategies, we're going to highlight a few after the break. There are things like scheduling your time, um, spending time in low risk activities, avoiding high risk activities, um, structuring your day, uh, behavioral ways to limit your risk in relapsing. It's basically trying to limit opportunities for the amygdala and your limbic system to get fired up and also limiting the amount of inhibition that the prefrontal cortex has to do. Um, so that's one, one key differentiator between using CBT for mental health and substance use. Um, and I think we've talked about most of these foundations already. CBT is very effective in a variety of substance use disorders. It's been evaluated in pretty much all the main categories, opioids, alcohol, stimulants, which do not have any FDA approved medications. CBT is often a gold standard there. And um, like many of you were mentioning earlier, CBT is also collaborative. It's a partnership between the clients and their provider. Um, part of that is because we want to make sure that the client's values are reflected in, in their treatment goals. We want to make sure that the client understands 
how what they're learning in treatment will be helpful for them. Um, you know, if the client's number one goal is to get their kids back, that's something that's really important to them. We want to try to help them connect how what they're learning in treatment and help push them towards that goal. Or if they want to get housing, you know, that's their number one goal. I don't really care about this therapy stuff, but I really want a place to live. All right, awesome. Let's talk about, let's highlight how some of the, what they are learning in treatment can help facilitate that goal of getting a place to live. Um, it's also structured. Again, the structure is designed to work with a brain that has trouble with memory, and focus, and, um, and attention. Structuring of the session also models the importance of the clients having structure in their life outside of session, because when they go back to their, their life, they leave the, the office, they leave that telehealth session, they're, they're back in the real world. And it's important, without structure, without plans, relapse is very, very common. And, and CBT is also very goal-oriented. We're focusing on immediate problems first, trying to help give them concrete tools and skills to help them in their recovery goals. Um, yeah. and, and I mentioned earlier, it's very flexible, flexible in terms of what the goals are, flexible in how you administer it. Um, one of the things we're gonna talk about is balancing structure and flexibility. I'll give you some concrete examples of that, um, especially when it comes to structuring the session. And it's individualized. Um, we have common worksheets and manuals to work from, but then it's a matter of connecting it to the client's lived experiences, connecting it to their, their life and their goals and their values. And then you can use CBT in all kinds of contexts, whether it's in an inpatient program or an outpatient, you can use CBT in individual sessions. CBT is also awesome in group sessions as well. Group, group therapy groups are such a, a really huge part of uh, recovery, especially in substance use. Lots of mutual learning that can happen. Um, I'll leave, I'll end the training with a couple of resources for relapse prevention groups in detail, but it, it's more than just relapse prevention. There's lots of worksheets and, and activities that you could do in group sessions. And CBT works really nicely alongside other modalities, whether it's pharmacotherapy, uh, like Chris mentioned earlier, using CBT alongside motivational interviewing can be really helpful too. And at its core, um, when we think about substance use behavior specifically, which is going to be kind of our first, how these are learned, our first, our next topic, um, part of this is this understanding that Behaviors around substance use are deeply ingrained. Um, substance use, substances affect the survival part of our brain, the reward pathway, incentivizes things to keep us alive. Um, and that's powerful. It takes time to learn new approaches to manage and adapt to old situations. And people are not always successful, successful the first time. Uh, relapse is often a part of the process. Um, for many people. Um, so in, 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 in CBT, basic concepts need to be repeated. Um, repetition of whole sessions or parts of sessions can be really important. Again, we're working with healing brains here. And that doesn't even go into 
There's healing brains connected to substance use disorder. And then also certain mental health conditions can also have their own cognitive impairments too. Um, another thing that's really, really remarkable is the parts of the brain that are most impacted by substance use disorders are the exact same parts of the brain that are so impacted by trauma, the amygdala, the limbic system, the prefrontal cortex. So there can be synergistic effects. Here. And then practice, like I mentioned earlier, practice is really important, which is also why a couple of you mentioned already homework and practicing outside of practicing what they've learned outside of session is also really important. Awesome. Um, this is kind of our you know, overview, the fundamentals, you know, kind of a 30,000 foot overview. Uh, many of these are probably familiar to you already, but I wanted to start with just a brief foundation of CBT really broadly before we jump into um, our substance use specific connections in just a second. All right, so what we're gonna do now is <clears throat> we're gonna shift gears slightly and we're gonna talk about from a CBT framework, what are some of the behavioral learning processes that contribute to substance use disorder? Because like I said earlier, addiction is a brain disease. Absolutely. But that is not the whole story. There's environmental factors that contribute to substance use. There's community-based factors. There's a lot of social factors. Um, and there's a lot of behavioral factors that contribute to developing an addiction in the first place. So we're gonna explore these next. To do that, I'm gonna talk about these generally, and then you all in small groups are gonna make a specific link to substance use disorders. So I know you all have heard of all of these before. These come from you know, basic psych 101 undergrad, these are really fundamental, so I'm just going to do it really, really briefly to refresh your memory. Um, the first one is social learning theory. Um, one of the ways that I like to illustrate this is I want you to think about the grocery store and the checkout line at the grocery store. Uh, what are some of the norms of behavior in the grocery store? Now, I know with COVID, this is a whole different conversation, but it actually applies really nicely as well. But what are some of the norms of appropriate behavior at the grocery store nowadays? Yeah, so I'm going to touch on that one first. You stay six feet apart from you and the person and people around you. Now, we have always had norms of personal space, but with COVID, they're a lot more explicit now. So how did you learn you need to stay six feet apart from you and other people? How did you learn that? So maybe you see a sign on the front door, stay six feet apart. Okay, what if you didn't see that sign? You were oblivious. So maybe you saw a Dr. Fauci briefing on TV that they say you need to stay six feet apart. But okay, what if you didn't see any of those? Who's gonna tell you that you need to stay six feet apart from you and other people? Other shoppers, <laughs> other people in the grocery store, if they get really close to you or you get really close to somebody else, you might have another person tell you, hey, please stay, step back, you need to keep some distance. The manager at the store, the clerks, the security people at the store, 
they will tell you, hey, you need to stay six feet apart from you and the people around you. Um, if you didn't catch the daily coronavirus briefings, or if you didn't catch the six feet distance sign at the front door, there are people around you who are gonna tell you, you need to stay six feet apart of, from you and other people. We weren't born keeping six feet of distance from other human beings. We had to learn this from the people around us. Even before coronavirus, there were norms of appropriate personal space, how much space you leave between you and the person in front of you at the grocery store that are cultural, that are defined by our cultures and different cultures have different values related to how much is appropriate personal space. But these are things that you learn from the people around you. As a small child, how do you learn personal space? You need adults or parents or collaterals or teachers at school to teach you to you know, be respectful of other people's personal space. The norms of what is appropriate behavior, you're not born doing these things. You have to learn them from the people around you, community members, friends, family. That's what the social learning theory is, get, is getting at. These norms of behavior that we learn from the people around us. There is many other great examples also. The fact that you wait, like Jessica mentioned, patient waiting in line. The fact that there is a single file line at all is a behavioral norm that you learned. Many of us learned as small children in school. You have to learn from the people around you, from your parents, from your teachers, from other adults. Um, we, we can really, and in, our, in the day-long training, I really go into this, like the 15 items or less. Absolutely, all of these are norms of what is appropriate behavior. that You learn from the people around you. So that's social learning. Right, real briefly, classical conditioning. I know you've all heard of it before. Work of Pavlov. Pavlov was studying dogs and their gastrointestinal systems. Devised a series of experiments where his lab assistants would ring a bell, feed the dogs, ring a bell, feed the dogs, ring a bell, feed the dogs. They were pairing a particular cue, the bell ringing, and it was paired with a particular response. So eventually, when they rang the bell with no food present whatsoever, how did the dogs respond at just hearing the bell ring? No food whatsoever. How did the dogs respond? There you go, exactly, they, they salivated. In addition to that, their gastric juices started to flow. They got all excited. Um, if, you have, if you have a pet at home, you know what that's like. Simply exposure to the cue itself. There's nothing inherent about a bell ringing that means that you're going to get fed. But if you learn over repeated, repeated examples, you start to pair a particular cue with a particular response. That response is often behavioral. And what was really incredible about Pavlov's experiments was the cue, the bell ringing, led to a physiological response in the dogs. Their bodies reacted autonomically. You know, we animals, including us, we do not control our, our saliva and our gastric juices. These are autonomic physiological functions that classical conditioning can affect after repeated pairings of a particular cue and a particular response. Um, that's the work of Pavlov and classical conditioning. Again, I know you guys know all this, so I'm going real fast. Operant conditioning, this was the work of Skinner. Uh, first off, positive reinforcement. 
Positive reinforcement is increasing behavior, usually by pairing it with some sort of reward or something pleasant, but increasing behavior. In Skinner's experiments, these pigeons were in cages. They wanted them to push a button. So the pigeons, if they pressed the button, they would get a treat. The pigeons learned very quickly, we will press that button to get another treat. Um, if you have a dog at home, you've taught it any tricks like to lie down or to roll over, you give it a treat. Tell the dog, sit down, the dog sits and you give it a treat. Why do you give them a treat? Because you want them to repeat that behavior the next time you tell them to sit. Um, that's increasing behavior, usually by pairing it with some sort of reward. Um, if you've ever gotten, like th think about like elementary school or middle school, you did really well on a test and your teacher gives you a gold star and they write down amazing job. Why do they do that? They want you to repeat that behavior. That is positive reinforcement, the praise, the reward. They want you to repeat that particular behavior of studying and doing well on the test. And positive reinforcement is very effective at helping instill behavior change in human beings. All right, that's positive reinforcement. Negative reinforcement, negative doesn't mean bad. It really just means taking away. So negative reinforcement is increasing behavior by taking something away. Um, in Skinner's experiments, the pigeons were in cages that had a mild electric shock and the pigeons discovered if they pressed the button in the cage, the electric shock would go away. Um, so if that electric shock came back, the pigeons ran right over to the cage and pressed the button. Um, let me give you a human example. <laughs> um, if you turn on the ignition in your car without buckling your seatbelt and you start driving, what will your car do to you? If you start driving without your seatbelt on. Yeah, it beeps annoyingly, absolutely. <laughs> it dings. It makes noise, a light flashes on your dashboard. It's really annoying. How do you get that beeping and flashing to stop? You gotta buckle your seatbelt. That is negative reinforcement. It's increasing behavior. They want you to buckle up by taking away something that's unpleasant. Negative reinforcement is confused a lot with punishment because of the word negative, but negative reinforcement increases behavior Punishment is designed to reduce behavior. So punishment is reducing behavior, usually by pairing it with some sort of consequence or something unpleasant. Our entire criminal justice system is based off of punishment. You break the law, you get punished with a fine, with incarceration, whatever. Um, they want you to reduce a particular behavior, a particular law breaking. Uh, this is, doesn't always work quite as effectively, um, but that is what the learning principle is based off, reducing behavior. So here's what we're going to do now. What we're going to do is we are going to split up into four groups. Um, and each group is going to get assigned one of these learning processes. And what I want you to do together with your colleagues is I want you to discuss how does this behavioral process, learning process contribute to developing a substance use disorder. So if you have social learning theory, how does social, the socialized norms of behavior, how does that play a role in developing an addiction? Or say you had positive classical conditioning. 
you had classical conditioning, what the bell ringing and the food, the salivate, what is the parallel? How does that repetition of behaviors and condition cues, what is the connection with how substance use disorders develop? Or same thing, positive reinforcement. How does that play a role in continuing to use despite the consequences that might develop or why it leads people to repeat those things in the first place? Drinking gives you a hangover. Why do you do it again? What are the behavioral processes underneath that? And then give some examples of that. And finally, how do you address it in a session with your clients? So what kind of conversations do you wanna have with them? What do you wanna teach them? What points do you wanna convey? What skills do you think might be helpful to teach them? But ultimately, how do you address this? If there's a lot, you recognize that negative reinforcement is playing a huge role. What do you do about it? How do you engage your clients in a conversation around what recovery might look like? For them? Then finally, pick a spokesperson. Because when you're done with your small group, we're going to come back together as a whole group and we'll share. Um, and your group assignment is connected to your learning process. Right. All right. Um, welcome back, everyone. But I want to give you all a chance to, to share some of those discussions, and I can help you as well. So I'd like to start with group number one. You had social, social learning. How does social learning, how can those norms of behaviors, how can that contribute to somebody developing a substance use problem? Yeah, so the, the norms of behavior around substance use are a product of the people around you. Like, how do you celebrate the holidays? How do you celebrate a birthday? How do you celebrate New Year's Eve? You know, all of these things are cultural constructs and it's incredible that so many people, the way we celebrate involves substance use. Now that's not for everybody and it's not in all cultures, but we learn how to do things from the people around us, including celebration. Um, how do you deal with stress? If you saw your parents after they had a long stressful day at work, they come home and the way that they unwind and de-stress is through substance use, as a child, you learn that's how you deal with stress. So these, how you handle difficult situations, how you handle stress, how you handle um, mental health. We learn these coping mechanisms from the people around us, from our family members, from our friends, from our peers. There's peer, there's a lot of peer pressure that can be associated with substance use at schools, the neighborhoods where people live. Um, these are all ways of how substance use behaviors are normalized. Um, and these are all culturally, these all exist in a cultural context, in a, in, in a community context, and just the human beings that we live around and who are around us. Um, awesome. Great job. Um, so just other things to think about, you know, when we think about um, how do you address it, it's things like helping the client raise awareness around how there are different ways to go through life without using substances. There are ways to celebrate. There are ways to deal with stress, to deal with sadness, to deal with mental health symptoms that don't involve substance use and teaching them. 
um, and kind of uh, help helping them to build community as well. If their friend group, they have a lot of friends who use substances, it's really important to build peer supports and to build community you know, that's healthier for them as, as individuals. Awesome. All right, let's go to our next group. You had classical conditioning and, and I will help you guys. Um, what are some of those? So classical conditioning, if you go back to Pavlov and his experiments, the bell ringing was paired with a behavioral and a physiological response. What's the parallel with substance use there? Yeah, so kind of going back to your example of sometimes there are certain emotions that precede substance use, like feeling sad or feeling down. And if over time you repeatedly, when I feel sad, I take a drink or I use, and you repeat that over and over again, that emotion starts to get paired with substance use and a particular behavioral response. So then just starting to feel sad again, I automatically start thinking about substance use and wanting to use again in the future. So we call those triggers. And I actually have a couple slides on those I'll show you once we come back from our break. These triggers can be internal, like emotions, like sadness or anxiety or hopelessness or hunger but they can also be external triggers. So say for example, I used to use substances at my friend's house and I did that over and over and over again, simply driving by my friend's house, that old place where I used to get high, just seeing that visually leads me to think about using. It can lead to cravings about substance use in the first, it, I'm wanting to use again. We, we call those triggers. Um, and seeing somebody drink in a movie or on social media can trigger thoughts about using again. And what's really powerful about these, this role of classical conditioning is, it is behavioral, but it's also physiological. People have an autonomic response to it. Um, and we can see that really clearly in fMRI scans. Um, the addiction center in the brain, the reward pathway, just being exposed to that trigger, it lights up as if they had just used, just being exposed to the trigger alone. So it's a really powerful physiological response that we don't have a lot of control over. Just like Pavlov's dogs don't have conscious control over their saliva and their gastric juices. These are physiological responses. So we'll talk more about strategies of coping with cravings in just a second, but it's like identifying them, avoiding them, planning ahead, but we'll dig into those in more detail. Awesome. Great job. All right. Uh, we are going to move over to group number three. You had positive reinforcement. So what you highlighted was a variety. Well, first off, first off the most basic is when people use substances, they get a dopamine rush and it feels really good. There's a euphoria associated with it. And when things feel really good, we want to do them again. That's a very basic positive reinforcement. This high feels incredible. I want that feeling again. And so I use again. Um, but it goes beyond just the euphoria and the high. Like Carissa, what you were mentioning, 
there's a lot of functional reasons that people use substances. So for example, um, you mentioned escapism or escaping from unpleasant emotions. You also mentioned peers. Um, when humans are social animals, we get pleasure from being around other people. And when you have fun with your friends and you're, and you're using substances in that process, it feels really good, the social connections, you wanna do it again. Additionally, there's other kind of functional reasons like substance use makes helps me to lose weight because my appetite. Um, and so if substances help me to lose weight, I'm gonna get, and I desire that, I wanna keep doing it. Or um, a client is experiencing homelessness. They use methamphetamine because it helps them stay up through the night so they can watch their stuff so their stuff doesn't get stolen. You know, there is a functional reason that the person is using in the first place. They get something from it. Um, substance use helps me go to sleep and I can't sleep and it's really problematic for me. If I double my, my Xanax dose, take more than the doctor told me that I should, that will help me get to sleep. Um, so these are all kind of functional reasons that a person might use in the first place. Uh, let's move on to group number four, and then I'm gonna circle back to how do you address these two together? Because they, they kind of go hand in hand. Uh, but let's go to negative reinforcement. Um, now, and again, negative reinforcement is different from punishment. Because punishment, we're trying to reduce behavior. So I might try to punish people by sending them to jail for their substance use and hope that that magically makes them stop, which spoiler alert, many of you know, that doesn't work so great, uh, unless they are mandated into treatment, they get care. But um, that's negative reinforcement is very different from punishment. But what is negative reinforcement in the connection to substance use? Let me circle back real quick, because um, again, sometimes this can get a little bit, this one in particular can get a little confusing. So negative reinforcement, if you think about it, um, like the annoying smoke detector, it's beeping, it's annoying, you want it to go away. The way you do that is you engage in a particular behavior, you replace the battery. So with substance use, what does substance use take away that makes a person go, wow, I wanna do that again? What does substance use take away that makes a person want to use again? Yeah, when people feel sad, they feel anxious, they feel hopeless, they feel down, and they want to take those really unpleasant feelings away temporarily, substance use is a great way to do that. Um, temporarily, now usually causes more problems in the long run. That's why, you know, these are cures for mental health conditions, but in the very short term, substance use can take away anxiety. It can take away hopelessness. It can take away your trauma memories helps you to numb those really unpleasant memories or emotions or feelings that will temporarily take them away to help you to feel better. Now, sometimes this is confusing because substance use can also take away things that are important to people. Like you can take away your children. It can take away your job or your housing, you know, and those are not desirable. But there are some things that are desirable. So that's really what that negative, and, and I think to Christina's point, like all of these are kind of 
come together at the same time. In real life, there's usually elements of all of these. There are social factors. There's conditioning, classical conditioning factors. There's some positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. So oftentimes these all go hand in hand. Starting to think about what might be some incentives to help people to cut down on your substance use. So that's also a really helpful discussion. So all of these together, addiction is a brain disease, certainly, but that's not the whole story. And understanding some of these behavioral factors can, can also play a role, play a role too. And it starts the conversation around recovery because if you explore some of the reasons that the person was using, it also starts the conversation around what does treatment look like? Because if the client is using because they're lonely and it helps them to feel better, that's going to inform what their treatment plan is going to look like. Um, if they're using to cope with depression, there might be some mental health counseling that can be helpful for them. We've got to find alternative ways to get their needs met. Uh, one of the clearest examples is trauma. If they're using to cope with trauma without the mental health trauma-focused work, they're highly unlikely to get sober again because the substance use is the primary survival mechanism that helps them to be functional and get through, get through life. So it's really important to think about the other services that might be really helpful for them. Um, if they're using to cope with stress, or to help them sleep. There's a lot of other ways that we can help them accomplish their goals. The, the, the functional impairments that people are using in the first place, those antecedents. If it's social factors, it's important to help the person to build community, to build uh, social supports, to repair relationships with family members, um, or learn how to navigate family situations where they know um, it, uh, there's a wedding coming up. There's going to be a lot of alcohol and substances there. How can we navigate that safely? How can we help them learn how to talk to their family about, about recovery? But these kind of get at really important factors that contribute to substance use that are important to be aware of as a person's kind of navigating treatment, as they're navigating, as they're navigating recovery. What we're going to do now is we're going to build on this, especially this last question here, uh, how might you address it in session? We're gonna kind of build on some of the examples that came up already. And we'll talk about some real concrete strategies and how to, how to deliver a CBT session. And I'll show you some worksheets. So really concrete worksheets that you can take away at leaving today's training you can, you can use and consider uh, incorporating. So here's, here's, Example, um, earlier. these are some of those behavioral strategies that I mentioned earlier, where one of the key differences in using CBT for substance use compared to mental health is we're gonna start with some behavioral strategies first. These are a couple really concrete ones. Structuring time, planning ahead, to spend as much time as you can in non-high risk activities and planning how to avoid or leave high-risk situations and if they encounter. Part of that is connected to scheduling time, identifying what those high-risk situations are and learn more strategies for coping with life problems that can come up that are associated with substance use. This is a good example of trying to figure out why and exploring with that individual Tell me some of the reasons that you that you like to drink. What does it help you with? What do you do? What does it do for you? 
and then also following up with what's not so good about that. Exploring the pros and cons and the two sides of their substance use can help to highlight some of those functional reasons that they're using in the third place. Um, and then, like I mentioned earlier, as the client progresses in treatment, some of the more cognitive work can be more readily incorporated. Um, so more further psychoeducation around substance use as a brain disease, exploring what their uh, conditioning and triggers and cravings. And I'm gonna show you some examples of that in just a second. And then more concrete cognitive skills that we will also highlight in just a second. Okay, so before we do that, and before we jump into the worksheet, I wanna spend just a little bit of time talking about um, the role of a CBT provider. Motivational interviewing is a really valuable skill set in, in delivering a CBT session because there's kind of two balancing acts. There's balance between being an empathetic counselor, being a good listener, asking good open-ended questions, reflecting what you hear, being non-judgmental and curious and client-centered. But at the same time, you also have to balance that with being a good teacher. Now, a good teacher has a lesson plan. There's concrete information you want to teach them. There are skills that you want to teach as a good teacher. And a good teacher also assesses for understanding. Did the, does the person understand the lesson? Did it make sense to them? And a good teacher also provides expectations for assignments, activities, and they're also a corrective source of feedback as well. So a CBT counselor is blend, it's balancing between these two sides, being a good listener, but also being a good teacher um, as well. So just to give you a couple examples of this, it's um, you need to be able to empathize with the individual to validate their experiences of being non-judgmental and compassionate and collaborative. But at the same time, you're kind of like a coach or a guide in their recovery. In addition to being a counselor, you're also kind of a cheerleader at times, acknowledging successes when they have disappointments or setbacks, helping to build their self-efficacy, remind them that they can, they can do it. Um, a good teacher also provides a source of corrective information. Uh, if you don't do your homework, a good teacher will hold you accountable, they'll explore with you what happened, what got in the way, and they will help you to, how can you get it done the next time around? Um, accountability is an important element as well. Um, so here's just more concrete examples of this. Good teacher, ask good questions, open-ended even better, trying to understand where they're coming from and empathizing, being non-judgmental is also really critical. And at the same time, there is really concrete information and skills to teach as well. Um, a good teacher also provides direction, helps to connect the lesson plan with their goals, creates expectations, we'll talk more about that, and reinforces small steps also. You want to acknowledge successes along the way. Point out when they're doing a, uh, they're making progress or they're they're making steps in the right direction. You want to acknowledge that. And when there are setbacks or disappointments, help them to build hope. Help them to learn from those setbacks and to keep pushing forward. And then also, 
uh, a, a, a good CBT counselor needs to be flexible and listening to what the client wants to talk about, to acknowledge urgent matters as they come up, but also be careful not to allow every session to turn into the crisis of the day. Now, when I say crisis, I don't mean life-threatening because certainly something life-threatening comes up, drop what you're doing or safety planning. You gotta, you gotta make sure that the person is safe. But what I mean by this is, you know, there's something come, came up for the client that the client really wants to talk about that in, you wanna make sure that they feel heard, but you also want to be careful not to let that take over the entire duration of the session. Um, and, and I'm going to, I'll show you more examples of that when we talk about the structure of the session. And so what this really means is, um, am I mentioned this a couple times already, really, really valuable skill set to use alongside CBT. Great. Just a couple other real concrete things, and then we will jump into the worksheets. So CBT sessions are structured. It's really important. And the structure is true for both individual sessions and for group sessions. So the basic, uh, well, the, the timing of the structure comes down to splitting it up into three parts. So however much time you have with the client, you split it into three sections. Um, if, you're, if you have an hour, it's 20 minutes each. Um, if you have a 50 minute session, it's about 15 minutes, not, not quite perfect, but it's about that. Um, if you're doing a group and you have um, a, a 90 minute group, then each section will be 30 minutes. So however much time, individual or group, you split it into three parts. And these are the three parts. Check-in and review is the first. The middle is introduce the new skill and practice. And then the third part is reinforce and assign homework because the homework is basically reinforcing outside of session. Um, so here's what those these sections look like. The first third is checking in, uh, review and check in. So part of what you're doing here is um, checking in about how they've been doing since the last time you saw them. So what's been coming up for them? Are there any concerns that the client has that's on their mind? This kind of gives you an opportunity to identify, is there something the client wants to talk about that's pressing for them or salient for them? Um, and how they've been doing in, in treatment. How have, it, how have their cravings been going? How are their mental health symptoms? Um, it's kind of assessing how they've been doing since the last time that you saw each other. Are there, on the substance use side, are there any high-risk situations coming up? How has their mental health symptoms or their substance use impacted their mental health symptoms? That's really critical. And DMH is helping the client connect those two. How their substance use impacts their mental health symptoms. Um, and checking in in the homework assignment from the last time you saw each other, reviewing the homework. If the client did not do the homework, it's important to explore what happened, what came up, uh, what obstacles got in the way, and help them to problem solve for the next time you do the homework. Part of this middle, the, sorry, this beginning third here is trying to find out, is there anything that the client that's important that they wanna talk about? Trouble at school, 
fight with a family member, something that's on their mind that's pressing. And if at all possible, how can I connect that to today's topic? So say they got into a big argument with their spouse. I want us, and that caused uh, all kinds of problems for them. How can I connect that argument with their spouse to today's topic? Now, sometimes, or you know, if the client was having trouble at school, how can I connect that with today's topic? Sometimes that's easier said than done. Um, one way that you can be flexible, but still structured is maybe you plan to do one lesson, which was like scheduling time, but it actually seems like coping with craving is a better topic for today. You can swap out your topics, um, but you just want to make sure you're still adhering to the structure, but sometimes you might change the lesson going into it. Um, but as much as you can relate the session to the client's current concerns, the more personal it feels, the, um, the more connected it is to their lived experience. You wanna do your best in that. Again, sometimes it's easier said to do than others. But the middle third is straightforward and you're teaching them the new information, you're practicing the new skill. And after this, I'll show you the first worksheet, which is an example of something that you can do with the client in this, in this middle third. CBT sessions, there's a lot of worksheets that you can use. We're gonna show you some examples of that today. And I'll show you how you might walk through a worksheet in this middle third. The final third is uh, reinforce and assign homework. So the final third here is where you're essentially exploring their understanding of the topic, connecting it to their lived experiences, because the worksheets are generic, you know, they're designed to be used by many different types of people with different types of lives. You want to try to help connect it to their lived experiences and what they need. And then start to look ahead. What are it coming up in the future? What might be some high risk situations that you might want to plan ahead for? Um, whether that's at home, school, at work, whatever that looks like. And then finally, you want to assign a homework assignment. The goal with homework is to reinforce the topic outside of session. Now, part of homework is helping the client to understand the reason why, making, giving them a clear rationale for what the homework is designed to do, what the purpose of it. And, and ultimately, the purpose in homework is not just teaching them to be good therapy clients, but you want them to, to use what they're learning in session and apply it in their lives, especially in an outpatient program. They're going to go home and we want to help them navigate how to integrate these skills into their day-to-day -day lives. And homework is a, a structured way to help them to do that. Um, and, and helping and explaining the importance of homework is really, really essential. It's not just busy work. There, there is purpose behind it. Um, the other thing about homework is you can also call it whatever you want to call it. It doesn't necessarily have to be homework. You can call it an activity or a project or whatever euphemism that you like. Sometimes people have visceral reactions to the word homework itself. The whole goal is to practice what they're learning outside of session. Um, sometimes homework is a worksheet. Sometimes homework is an activity. It's a behavioral 
it's a behavioral process. Um, this is where you can use a lot of creativity in coming up with homework assignments to reinforce and practice the skills. And we'll give you a couple examples uh, of what that can look like and a couple resources to pull from additional ideas. But the whole purpose of these thirds, um, first, middle, and last, again, this is designed to work with the healing brain to help with memory and retention, uh, especially a brain that has been affected by substance use disorders. This is just also good learning principles more generally, um, but it also helps them see the importance of structure. This is also where the skill is in practice. Um, as, you, as you'll see in just a moment, the worksheets aren't rocket science. They're very straightforward, but the real skill is actually delivering the session in a flexible, but also still structured way. Because if you are too passive and you're not mindful of your time um, and you're not mindful of your, your plan going into the session, it's really easy to lose track of the structure. One of the easy, one common thing that happens is this review and checking, and especially if you have a very talkative client, this can turn into the entire session if you're not careful. Um, one thing that can help with that is orienting the client in advance to what a CBT session looks like and, and reminding them of this, how you're and being very direct and upfront with how you structure the sessions themselves. So you want to be careful not being so passive and lose track of time. But at the same time, if you are too rigid and machine-like in, in adhering to the structure, you can lose the personal connection to the client. So up oh, three o'clock, time to move on. You know, it, it, it's, in, it's not genuine and it can, it can negatively affect the relationship. So that's really where the skill is working together with your clinical supervisors to practice um, some of the flexibilities. So let's get really, really concrete. Um, we're gonna show you an example of one of the first worksheets that we are gonna use, um, and it is called um, the functional analysis. So let me show you the first worksheet. This is a good example of how some of the trauma symptoms might even come up. On, on this particular worksheet. So this is what we call a functional analysis. It, it's very similar to a, a thought record. It gives you a structured way to explore the preceding thoughts, feelings, behaviors that contribute to their substance use. This can highlight some of the reasons that bring them into treatment. Um, what brought them into the clinic what are the reasons that are there? And how can we see how the substance use is connected to that? Um, so functional analysis, we're assessing some of the high-risk situations. Um, it helps the client to start to develop insight into the reasons that they use. Because some clients don't have a lot of insight into why they're using substances. Um, if, and if you ask them, um, you know, tell me some of the, the reasons that contribute to their substance use, or what are some of the factors that come before it? Sometimes you get a lot of, I don't know, I just did, or I just felt like it. Um, one of the goals of this worksheet is to help the client to develop some of that insight. Um, and what I, one thing that I also want you to not, also, not lose track of is what are their skills and strengths as, as well? 
I'm not gonna read through these one by one, but while you're kind of exploring this, it's always important to try to pull for some strength and highlight what is their resiliency. Um, what are the positive steps that they're taking or positive relationships that they might have? Um, what kinds of social supports do they have that they might, might be a valuable asset in, in their recovery from mental health and substance? Okay, and what might be possible carrots for them? What are the reasons that they're in treatment? If the client showed up at all, there is motivation to be there because they don't have to. They don't have to be there. Even if their treatment is court ordered, they have a choice. They don't have to be there. There might be consequences if they don't show up or if they don't participate, but they're making an active choice to answer the phone if it's a telehealth session or to come into treatment in the first place. And that could be a valuable carrot. It can be a very valuable source of motivation to help engage people in it. Okay, so here's what the worksheet gets at. There's five domains, essentially, cognitive, emotional, physical, social, and environmental. Um, and I mentioned those five W's earlier. It really boils down to what was going on before they used, how were they feeling, where were they, who were they with, and uh, what happened afterwards. Those are the five W's, the when, the where, the why, with whom, and then what happened. So let me, let me orient you to the worksheet itself. So this is included in the handouts that Brandy emailed to everyone yesterday. And I'll also show you where you can get access to these, more of these worksheets here. Um, and you'll see the cognitive triad is essentially embedded in this worksheet. So here's how you might explore um, the, an in, the worksheet with the client. So you might orient them to, so in today's session, we're gonna be using a worksheet called the functional analysis. One of our goals here is to explore what are the things that lead to substance use? Because substance use doesn't happen for no reason. There's usually particular reasons that people want to use in the first place. And the worksheet helps us to explore what was going on. So I want you to think about the last time that you used. Now, and you want to be specific with what, the, what it is for that individual. So the last time that you used, I want you to think about before you used, what happened before? So where were you geographically? Um, we went home. I don't know, everything with COVID is a little bit different, but like, were you at home? Were you at work? Were you in the car? Where were you kind of physically, geographically? Um, who were you with, if anybody? And what kinds of activities were you doing beforehand? Were you working? Were you cleaning? Were you kind of watching TV, kind of bored? What were you doing beforehand? And then lastly, when did you first become aware of wanting to use? Now, this one, especially in the early phases, you're likely to get a lot of I don't knows. And that's okay, it's normal. One of the goals is to slowly build insight. Um, <clears throat> and this is a worksheet that you can repeat. 
This is a worksheet you can also assign as a homework assignment. So they practice doing this on their own as well. But the goal is to help them to gain insight. So it's okay to get a lot of I don't knows in the beginning. It's helpful to kind of work through that and help them to gain some awareness. So also before you used, what, what were you thinking about beforehand? Were you thinking about um, finding I know during COVID, you've been trying to find a job. Were you thinking about you know, your family? What kind of thoughts were coming up beforehand? And then finally, were there any emotions? What were you feeling beforehand? And this could also be helpful to have a conversation around talking about emotions, um, maybe using like pictures, an emotion chart. That can also help if you get a lot of I don't knows. And then did you get any signals from your body? Sometimes people feel things physically like a tightness in your chest or a, a stomach that get, uh, your stomach kind of turns in knots, your heart starts to race. Um, so if you think about it, essentially, and this is beforehand, it's basically the cognitive triad, thoughts, feelings, behaviors. There's a couple other elements to it, but it's basically before you used thoughts, feelings, behaviors. So this is the beforehand. Then you get the behavior itself. So what did you use? Um, how much did you use quantity? Did you use any paraphernalia? Um, and what did other people around you do at the time? Um, <clears throat> and then lastly, what happened after you use? What came after the fact? Um, how did you feel right after? You know, sometimes people feel relieved and then disappointed. Were you feeling better and then, and then upset? Were you feeling um, really good for a while? Like, what, how did you feel right after? Uh, how did other people react to your behavior? And then were there any other consequences, positive or negative? So uh, also, this is trying to get at the cognitive triad again, almost after the fact, too. But it, it, the, the whole point is to break down one particular example of an instance where they use and to try to explore beforehand thoughts, feelings, behaviors, during and after. Kind of even before this worksheet, having a more open discussion around their substance use and what the, um, tell me about your substance use. What does that look like for you? What substances do you typically use? Um, what do you like about those substances? Um, and what's not so good about them? What are the not so good effects? Because you're absolutely right, Danielle, trying to figure out what is their reasons for that particular drug can give you really helpful clinical information about why they're using, are there functional reasons that they're using, are there mental health connections? Almost always there is direct connections between their mental health and the substance use. Um, really good at point. That's exactly, you're exactly right there. The worksheet helps to build an insight and awareness and it helps them to understand what their triggers are. That's exactly one of the main purposes of this particular worksheet. It's to convey the underlying point is substance use isn't random. There is usually predictable patterns. Oftentimes those patterns involve their mental health symptoms, but there can also be other triggers too. And this helps us start building that awareness. 
one of the purposes of this act, it also helps make things concrete. It gets it out of the client's head. They can see it on paper. They can also explore situations that have been troublesome for them in the past and also start to connect consequences with choices and behaviors that come up um, and consequences of their substance use um, and impacts of their substance use on their mental health treatment goals. When I used my mental health symptoms got much worse. I used initially to help me feel better and then my mental health problems got much worse. It can help to build that awareness and connection between those two, which is so important to me. One of the goals of that worksheet, five W's in, in functional analysis is to start to explore the people, the, the locations, the emotions, the mental health symptoms, that have been associated with substance use. In, in recovery talk, we call these triggers. Triggers at their core, these are the conditioned cues. It goes back to classical conditioning. Um, these are neutral, unconditioned stimuli that are repeatedly paired with substance use behaviors. It goes all the way back to Pavlov's experiments there. So trigger. These are things or emotions or mental health symptoms that have been associated with substance use in the past. Triggers can be pretty much anything, but we kind of generalize them as people, places, things, time periods, or emotions. And I'll, I'll show you the, the process of how the triggers lead to thoughts about using, which leads to cravings. So again, triggers can be literally anything but these are just some common examples. Uh, people that they used to use with, family members that they use with, friends, um, coworkers that they use together, um, locations, these are really common. Um, a person's house, a part of town, a neighborhood, a street, an exit on the freeway, uh, bars, locations, objects, paraphernalia, of course, money is a big one for many people, a big wad of cash, um, seeing substance use on movies or TV or social media, um, and time periods also, paydays, holidays, boredom is a very, very common one, or, you know, five o'clock, right after work, periods of stress, these are external. And then internal, uh, these are emotions, feelings, mental health symptoms. And here's the basic process that you teach them. And there are worksheets to help you to walk through this. But here's the process that typically happens. There's exposure to the trigger. That leads to thoughts about using. The thoughts get stronger. They become more powerful. They lead to a craving. Craving is a physiological response. It's, neurolog it's a neurochemical reaction that leads to physical activation. And it leads to a behavioral response, which often is using a substance. Um, because it helps cope with the craving, essentially. There are many similar processes with mental health. You know, there's exposure to a trigger. So maybe I got, I got in trouble with my boss at work. That leads to a negative thought. 
uh, I'm not good enough, I'm a failure, you know, all those automatic thoughts that are connected to your core beliefs, this might lead to a negative emotional reaction. I'm feeling, I'm feeling guilty, I'm feeling disappointed, I'm feeling hopeless. And then this might lead to some maladaptive coping skill that I try to self-soothe with that usually ends up being problematic in some way. Um, I isolate, self-medicate, um, things like that. Um, so they're, they're, although our systems are very siloed, mental health and substance use, in actuality, they are birds of a feather. They're a lot more similar and they're very similar processes with um, mental health and substance use. Uh, but this is an important element of the, the functional analysis worksheet is to help teach your clients about triggers. And then, and I'll show you a couple worksheets in just a second. You wanna to start to identify um, high-risk situations that are highly associated with substance use and then low-risk situations. And like I mentioned, a really foundational behavioral strategy is to decrease the amount of time you spend in high-risk situations and maximize your time in those low-risk. So let me, let's, let's get real concrete again. Um, we're gonna walk through another worksheet uh, but this time, um, we're going to go through this worksheet as if we were in a group session together, okay? So I will be the group facilitator, and all of you, I want you to pretend to role play clients in our co-occurring group, our COD group, our co-occurring disorders group. So I want you to role play clients. Now, having said that, um, I, want, I want you to be mindful that in this group, for the sake of demonstration um, of the worksheet, I want you to role play a client who's even slightly motivated to be there. Because if you role play a client who's cussing and kicking and spitting and screaming, I'm going to engage in a different skill set. Uh, I'm certainly not going to shove a worksheet in your face because that's only going to make things worse. So having said that, I want you to role play a client with a little bit of motivation to be there, just for the sake of illustration. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to role, role play the middle third of our session. So I'll remind you of what we talked about last week or last session, which was the functional analysis worksheet. Introduce today's topic. And here's how I'm going to do this. Uh, there's different styles, but this is how I'm going to show you. I'm going to ask for a volunteer to read a paragraph. When they're, they're done, I'm going to summarize, ask follow-up questions to connect the material to their lived experiences, and then just kind of work our way through the worksheet section by section. Uh, for the sake of time, we're just going to do one page of this, um, but I think it will help to illustrate concept and it'll help to expose you to another one of the worksheets. Right, great. So thank you all. We just did our review and check-in where we kind of highlighted what we talked about together in our last co-occurring disorders group where we started to explore some of the antecedent, some of the things that often come before substance use. The main point there is substance use isn't random. And oftentimes, substance use can come up 
exacerbate those mental health symptoms. And the mental health symptoms can be triggers for substance use. And that's what we're gonna explore in more detail today because there's a process. There's exposure to the trigger that leads to thoughts about using. Those thoughts get stronger, become a craving. And then if we give in to that craving, it leads to relapse or that behavioral response of using. Yeah. So trigger, thought, craving, use. That's our topic for today. Awesome, thank you for reading that. What, what, what that really gets at is when you're exposed to your triggers, that prompts thoughts about using that are really powerful. They can start to lead this to this argument in our own heads. What are examples of some of the relapse justifications you've told yourself in the past when that comes up? What are some examples for you? Yeah, if, if I just use, I'll be able to kind of numb myself for a little bit and not have to think about the abuse that happened. Yeah, yeah what else? What's another example of that justification that can come up? Yeah, so I need to have more, more energy tomorrow, so I got to go to sleep now, and it'll help me to do that. I can start again tomorrow, or um, just a little bit will hurt, or, you know, I'm by myself, who's going to know? Yeah, these, our, our brains are really good at coming up with these justifications to give in to that craving as they come our next paragraph for me thoughts become cravings it these thoughts that come up what ends up happening is they get stronger and stronger and stronger and if we don't do something about it they get sometimes can be really overwhelming um i'm curious for you all uh, what are some examples of how strong and urgent those thoughts can be if you don't do something about it in terms of substance use. How hard can they be to avoid sometimes when they come up in your head? One of the things that we mentioned when it comes to thought stopping is thought stopping isn't trying to deny that the thought is there, but it's really a means of acknowledging the thought, being mindful of it, and reminding ourselves we need to engage in other coping strategies to help get through that craving. So I really appreciate that because those thoughts can be very intrusive. And we'll all, in, in, in just a second, we'll highlight some great examples of that. Awesome. Uh, who would be willing to, to read the last two short paragraphs? Uh, the automatic process and thought stopping. They're both brief. So you, you highlighted this process here. There's exposure to the trigger, that leads to thoughts about using. If you, that's an opportunity to halt the process there. Um, we'll call that thought stopping. But if you don't do something about it, that thought can get stronger, more overwhelming. We call that craving. Um, and while it's still possible to halt the process, it's a little bit harder. Um, and if you don't do something to cope with craving, that can lead to the behavioral response of using. So what we're going to talk about next is some thought-stopping techniques and some coping with craving techniques. Next. So we're going to pause right there just for the sake of time. We're just going to do this one worksheet. But this is just one example of trying to take a general worksheet, summarize it, 
and try to get the clients to link the information to their lived experiences. So people have different styles for how they do it, but this is just one way I like to invite part other voices in the room. So I, I'm not reading everything, but if you do that, you will also want to know who was in your group. If you have um, participants who have trouble with reading and writing, I might not do that because you want to be mindful of literacy. You don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. Um, so it is important to know who's in your group. Otherwise, you know, you might do the reading yourself. But the key, the key concept is to break it up, summarize, and connect to, to lived experiences. The more voices you can get in the room, the better. This is more didactic. There's more information. And, and, and next, we'll show you more activity-based worksheets you can also use. But this is an example of, you know, the functional analysis, the first worksheet, this helps to build on that uh, by starting to explore what the triggers are. Um, and cravings are that intense desire, that urgent need to use. And in, like we mentioned in the SUD 101 training, substance, the reward pathway is a survival part of our brain. So when people experience cravings, it feels like an urgent need to live, like life or death. It's incredibly powerful. Um, and there can be people experience craving differently. Again, it goes back to the cognitive triad. Some people feel it more physically, there's more feelings. Some people have more cognitions, thoughts. Uh, some people have more physiological reactions to it as well. Um, like I can just feel it in my stomach or my heart starts to race or I can start smelling it. That's a common one too. And then other people have more cognitive reactions. I need it, it's calling me. I can't get it out of my head. Those relapse justifications that we just mentioned earlier, other good examples. And what we wanna do is teach them that they can interrupt this process. Trigger, thought, craving, use. The easiest way is to avoid the trigger entirely. That's the easiest way. Um, now, that's not always possible. There sometimes there are surprises, especially those internal triggers, sometimes are not always easily avoidable. But if you can learn to identify the thought, there are still opportunities to halt the process to prevent the thought from becoming a craving. Once you get to the craving, it's built up some momentum. It's a little bit harder, but it's still possible to intervene to prevent the craving to turn into the behavioral outcome. What are some coping with craving strategies you've taught your clients to use before? Anybody have some examples of those coping with craving strategies? When it comes to the triggers, is you want to help them avoid those that are unavoidable and then plan ahead for those triggers that they can't avoid. Because there are lots of triggers that you cannot avoid, uh, whether it's payday, whether it's family, whether it's emotions, whether it's living situations, you can't always avoid those. So it's important to think ahead in advance. You might even write up a coping card um, about what you might, coping, some coping with craving strategies that they can use if they encounter those triggers that are unavoidable. 
But what's really important is to try to plan ahead for those as much as you can. Um, that's a really, really important question. And thank you for that. And I'll, so I'll show you some examples here. And then I'll show you another worksheet that can help with this process. Um, one of the main ones is behavioral, get busy, engage in other low risk activities, um, do something to get yourself busy. That is individualized. Like one example is like go for a walk or get some exercise, but you want to explore that with that individual. Sometimes going for a walk means there's a liquor store at the edge of the corner which can be a trigger for them. So that might not be a strategy or how, which way you walk in particular. There might be other activities that you can do instead. Um, talk about it. This is also really important um, to call a drug, a sponsor, a counselor, uh, uh, a drug-free friend or family member. Um, talking about it, talking about the craving can help you to get through it. Exercise and yoga, absolutely. Yeah, and to kind of connect it to that, yoga is kind of like exercise meets meditation. Both of those are also really helpful. Yeah, definitely. Um, and connect to that prayer. Uh, religion can also be helpful for people who, who have uh, religious beliefs that are important to them. That can also be a useful coping with craving strategy. Um, we, there's whole worksheets on thought stopping, but in a nutshell, a couple of, there's different kind of visualization techniques Sometimes people will visualize like a giant red stop sign um, or an on off switch. And the whole purpose in, in this context is it's really a, a means of raising awareness about the thoughts, almost like a grounding technique essentially. And it's a reminder to engage in your other coping strategies because thought stopping all by itself doesn't work. If you say, don't think about it, don't think about it, you're just going to think about it more. <laughs> so it's not enough by itself, but it really is a way to kind of remind you, I got to do some of these other things too. I got to call my, my, my sponsor. I got to contact my, my friend. I need to do some yoga, some meditation. Um, another one is people have different term, terms for this. Sometimes they call it surf the craving or urge surfing or riding the wave. The basic concept behind this is that <clears throat> cravings are like waves in the ocean. The wave goes up, but then the wave can't go up forever. It will always come down on the other side. It's just physics. It's impossible. The wave gets, goes up and it's really scary, but it will always come down the other side. And so if you surf that wave, you remind yourself, I'm feeling a craving. It's really strong right now, but I can get through this. It won't last forever. And I can, I can surf it down the other side. Um, there's a similar parallel to anxiety. If someone's having you know, a, a, an anxiety attack, they are at peak 10 out of 10 anxiety activated. It's physiologically impossible to stay that way forever. That anxiety will come down, um, just like waves in the ocean. Um, there, there's, there's, there's lots more to these coping with cravings, but I just wanted to kind of highlight a couple, a couple of them about how do you deal with unavoidable triggers. This is a good segue um, to, to build on that into some more detail, uh, which I'm just going to really briefly show you 
two more worksheets. The first one is an external trigger questioning. Now, unfortunately, in three hours, I don't have time for us to do a, a role play with these, but I, I'm, I'll walk you through them so you can see how they work. You can look at them in more detail and practice them after the training. Um, but this is a good example. After you've done the functional analysis maybe a couple times, this is a good example of how you can build on that. So the functional analysis is the first look at identifying what your triggers are. Those people, places, things, times a day, whatnot. Um, this helps to expand that list in more detail. Here's the basic way that this worksheet, how it works. What you'll do is you'll walk the client through this list of activities and place the check mark next to those activities or places where you frequently use substances. So if they use at sporting events, you'll put a check mark. At parties, you'll put a check mark. For those situations or activities where they never use, you put a little zero. So if you never use during a date, put a zero. Uh, after payday, that one's not common, but you can put a zero. Uh, at the park, you know, what, whatever is appropriate, uh, applicable to that individual, you put a zero. Um, and then there are some open-ended questions to go at the end. Uh, other activities, situations, or settings where you frequently use, that you can explore in there. Now, again, this is just a, a general starting point. You're always welcome to add to this list, add additional examples, um, but this is our, our external trigger. So you'll see there's a lot of common ones like work, home, um, paydays, sporting events, home alone. These are like activities or situations or locations. Then what you do is you have your, your check marks and zeros up here. You have additional open-ended examples down here. Then what you do is you go to the second page and for the zeros, the activities that you have zero next to, you then place them in the never use column or the almost never use. Then you take your check mark situations and you will place them in either almost always use or always use. So it's a little bit more nuanced than this one. Um, and then when you're done with that, you kind of have a, a list of activities that are safe. They're low risk on the safety thermometer. These situations are low risk, but you need to be cautious. These situations are high risk. You need to avoid. And then these situations are extremely high risk. You need to avoid completely. Or some of these situations are not avoidable. Um, but what they indicate is these are situations where you need to plan ahead for. Because if you don't have a plan, you're making a choice to relapse. That's the framing behind it. Otherwise, we need to make a plan to help you to navigate that and, and reduce some of your risk for relapse in the process. Um, and these are activities that you can do that are gonna be much lower risk. It helps with scheduling and, and planning of activities. So these, these worksheets work at ex 
expand on the list of external triggers. Um, it's kind of counterpart worksheet is internal triggers. The process is very, very similar, but um, these are emotions, feelings, internal states. You can incorporate and add more mental health symptoms on here as well. But the process is the same. Check marks next to those feelings or oops, feelings or emotions that often lead substance use, like when I'm feeling nervous or when I'm feeling criticized or when I'm feeling bored, check marks. And then for those feelings where you never use, you can put a zero. If I never use when I'm hungry, put a zero or when I'm worried, put a zero. Um, and again, there is an open-ended section to incorporate. And then just like last time, you put the, the zeros in never use or almost never use, the check marks you put in almost always use or always use. And then you have a list of emotions that are safe, emotions that are low risk, high risk, and very high risk. Now, emotions are quite as easy to avoid like locations might be, but just like the other worksheet, now you have a list of, these are risky feelings for me. I know if I allow myself to get bored, I'm going to relapse. Or I know that if I start feeling insecure in a situation, if I don't do something, I'm putting myself at risk for a relapse. So I need to, I need to have a plan in place. I need to know what to do when that comes up. Because otherwise, um, if it hits you by surprise, it can lead to relapse. And oftentimes, their mental health symptoms, their trauma symptoms, these are very, very common internal triggers for coping. Because they're often reasons that people are coping in the first place. The, these worksheets are yours. These are all public domain. You're available to use these and you can incorporate them however you feel they might be helpful. Because the other thing is, you know, working in a DMH, DMH clinic, you know, and, and contracted providers, there's mental health goals and then there are how the substance use affects those mental, mental health goals. So you're definitely welcome to uh, work with your clinical supervisors and incorporate these how you think might be helpful for your just going to highlight in the time that we have left just a couple other examples. One of them is scheduling time. Um, this is another helpful example for people who are in the very early recovery phases. They're just starting to cut down on their substance use or they're in the very early days of getting sober, for example. Um, they're just starting to work on their, on their goals. This is a foundational skill that helps to reduce the amount of work that, that prefrontal cortex has to do at an inhibition. Um, and it's planning your day, what you do during your day. Um, because for many people in recovery in, with substance use disorders, boredom and a lack of structure, a lack of planning ahead is one of the most common triggers for relapse. And it makes them more vulnerable to encountering high-risk situations and being unprepared for what, for, for what happens. Um, especially in outpatient programs, when they don't have a 24-hour structure here. 
Um, if they do what they do when they feel like doing it, oftentimes that leads you to relapse. So planning out a day in advance and starting out small, just starting out one day at a time can be helpful to maximize their time in low risk situations or look ahead to high risk situations that they cannot avoid and start to think about how can they navigate that in a safer way, in a way to reduce their likelihood of, of using in, in those contexts. Um, the, the goal around scheduling is the more you stick to it, the more likely you are to stick to your goals, to not use. Um, if you don't follow the schedule, you're putting yourself at risk of relapsing or, or using. Um, so it helps to kind of think about also outcomes of various change strategies too. Uh, a really simple goal here, staying on schedule equals staying sober or adhering to your goals. Ignoring the schedule equals making a choice to use again. Um, and again, I don't have don't have the time to kind of walk through the worksheets here, but I just want to highlight that there are worksheets that you can use to help with that. That uh, first off talks about the importance of scheduling. Um, the importance of writing it down is also really key, um, and also navigating how to make this practical for that individual. Um, some people know that if you write it down on a piece of paper, they're going to lose it instantly. So how about we write it down and then we take a picture of it so you have it um, that way. Um, some people don't want to write it down on a paper. They prefer to use a phone or some other way of, of documenting it. Um, but writing it down is what's really important. And then the other thing about scheduling that's also really important is acknowledging that this is the client's schedule, that you're really just the guide to help facilitate documenting it and also helping them to think about ideas of what to incorporate or to highlight pitfalls or potential risks along the way. Uh, this is not a schedule that you are writing down and forcing them to follow. Uh, it's a coll that collaboration is really important in, in working with the schedule. And then there are some there are some worksheets to help you do that. The other thing about scheduling is that perfection is not the goal. Um, perfection it, it really is the process of it. The process of thinking ahead, trying to plan your day to reduce your risk of of relapse and every time the client makes an effort to stick to the schedule you want to reinforce that you know acknowledge the efforts that they're making um, acknowledge attempts and help to strategize what got in the way the other thing one other just, just quick concrete thing and then i'll move on is you can schedule in flexibility also um, you know if they have a few hours of free time in the afternoon you know, how do I know what I want to feel like doing tomorrow? Um, you can actually schedule in multiple options. So, you know, between 4 and 7 p.m. or whatever, you could go to a walk, go for a walk, you could read a book, you could watch a movie. You know, you can write down multiple low-risk options in, in that particular area. So as long as they're choosing from those options, they're still sticking to the schedule, but it's a way to help embed a little more flexibility into it. And again, perfection's not the goal. It really is about the process of 
trying to get them to think ahead and anticipate and maximize their the time that they spend in those lower risk situations. Um, we have just enough time for uh, highlighting a couple things about relapse prevention, and then we'll wrap up for, for this afternoon. And then I will also highlight where you can get some more of these worksheets and an, an additional evidence-based manual that has, it's particularly helpful for co-occurring disorders that I'll also highlight. Um, and when it comes to relapse prevention, you're gonna see that there's a lot of common themes. So this is typically for people more advanced in the recovery process. Um, now they're working on sustaining change, which is hard. Behavior change is hard and maintaining it is even harder. Um, but there's a lot of relapse prevention techniques and tools that can be helpful for folks. Um, and I'm just gonna highlight, this is just the, just the beginning, but it helps give you fundamentals here. One of the most important points is that relapse is not random. Um, again, this probably sounds familiar because I mentioned it earlier, substance use isn't random. Um, we wanna draw that parallel as well. Just like there are patterns in triggers, there are also patterns when it comes to relapse. Um, in one of the co-occurring manuals, one thing that is really common is resurgence in mental health symptoms often predict relapse and substance use and vice versa. Relapse and substance use can often make those mental health symptoms worse. So there's, there's a lot of connections and relapse prevention between their mental health and their substance use symptoms because they're interconnected almost always. Um, so we wanna help them to identify what are those predictable patterns for that individual. Um, the functional analysis that I showed you earlier is one worksheet that you can use directly. You can almost do a relapse analysis where you explore the last relapse, go right back to that cognitive triad, thoughts, feelings, behaviors, what came beforehand, what came afterwards. Um, it works really well there too. Um, and one of the things about relapse prevention, another foundational element is uh, teaching them about the abstinence violation effect, which is essentially how you think about relapse is really important. And there's a lot of opportunities to reframe their thinking. So when people relapse, um, you know, they typically have two ways of thinking about it. One of them, which can be more common is I screwed up, I'm a failure, and this is hopeless, so screw it. Um, I might as well give in because I, I, I can't do this. Um, this obviously is a less productive thought pattern, but it's very, very common. Um, I like to think about this as almost like the F it effect, F being short for a different other colorful four-letter word. Um, if you've ever been on a diet and you've been doing really well, you know, eating lots of fresh fruits and vegetables, not a lot of junk food, but then, you know, there is some cookies in your cabinet that's kind of calling your name and you mean to only have one cookie, 
but it tastes so good. So you're like, ah, oh, F it. I've already ruined my diet. I might as well give in. And before you know it, like half the box is gone. Um, that is a parallel here where if you make a small mistake, if you think to yourself, I've ruined it. This is hopeless. So what's the point? That feeds into a more prolonged lapse in symptoms. So instead, we want to help them learn that relapse is a slip up, it's a mistake, and it's an opportunity to learn from it. What got what what were some of the challenges that I had? How can I learn from that opportunity and to keep moving forwards? Um, sometimes people, when they relapse, they think they think to themselves, um, I've wasted. I have to start all the way over at zero again. And that's not actually true. You know, everything that you learn in treatment and in your journey doesn't get wiped away. And you start over at zero. Um, you can pick up from there and, and keep moving from it. Use it as an opportunity for learning. Yeah, maybe your timer, your day counter. But what's really important is the learning opportunity from it. Sometimes people also like to to nuance the language. A lapse and a relapse are different. Sometimes that can also be a way to kind of conceptualize it. Just because you have a, you make a small mistake doesn't mean that you're going to return to a full-time addiction again. Um, how you think about it and how you help the client to reframe it can be really helpful. All right. So I think, I think you get the, the general point with these. We just highlighted a couple other examples of some common examples of what that abstinence violation effect can sound like. This is hopeless. Uh, I've blown everything now. Um, I've lost all control. You want to try to help them to reframe it, highlight progress, highlight success. If the intervals between relapse is increasing, that's progress. You know, if this time they made it six months until they relapsed, or last time it was only one month, that is progress. That is a step in the right direction. Even acknowledging, you know, I really appreciate you coming in and talking to me about your relapse. We can work through this together. Um, you're strong and you're resilient. And I know you're having a tough time right now, but I really appreciate you coming in to talk to me about that. Even acknowledge, because it's hard to be vulnerable and to tell your counselor, I messed up. Um, that in and of itself takes courage. And that's an opportunity to acknowledge that. Um, also helps to build a relationship. Also. So there's a, we gave you a couple other examples of how you can kind of reframe some of those. Uh, learning to get sober is like riding a bicycle. Sometimes mistakes happen. Um, it's important to get back up and to keep trying. Ultimately, uh, relapse really is kind of a process rather than an event, and you can use them as a learning opportunity. One of the things about relapse prevention is it's really helpful to do this in group settings as well, because there's a lot of opportunity for mutual learning, for, for clients to share high-risk situations with each other and also share strategies that have helped each other too. Because there's oftentimes early warning signs that can be identified either by the client themselves or by their counselors or their family members that can help engage them um, to do something about it when those come up. And, and 
there's a lot of real specific details that go into relapse prevention plans that, that a lot of the worksheets will walk you through. But, but like I mentioned earlier, relapse preventions are really awesome group sessions to do because it gives the clients opportunities to build up peer supports, um, to learn from each other about what pitfalls come up, what precursors often look like for them. And they can also learn from their, their colleagues about strategies and tools that have helped them to sustain their recovery. Um, and also for you as their counselor, sometimes it's also insightful to see their interactions with their peers as well. So relapse preventions are a really, a really helpful um, topic to, to do in group settings too. Um, and uh, we're not gonna walk through these in detail, but I just wanna show you just some examples of what some of these relapse prevention worksheets look like. Um, this one walks you through how, um, how relapse is common, it happens, uh, what exactly is relapse and what are some of the, the preceding factors that can contribute to that. One of them is addictive behaviors. These are warning signs that often precede substance use. <clears throat> um, these are things like lying or being unreliable or maybe some compulsive behaviors. Um, <clears throat> there's also addictive thinking. Um, 12 step, call it stinking thinking. These are kind of similar to some of those relapse justifications that we talked a little bit about earlier. These are also common predictors of relapse. Um, and then emotional buildup. This is another really common one um, that can happen. And there's a lot more to these relapse prevention slides, but I just wanted to, to show you a couple, couple examples of them. I wanted to walk you through two concrete resources, and then I'll come back to the slide here. So the first one is these specific worksheets come from SAMHSA's Counselor's Treatment Manual. Um, this is an evidence-based manual based off of the Matrix Intensive Outpatient Manual. So if you were to do this by the book, it's designed to see clients multiple times per week. But you can pick and choose worksheets from here that are helpful in all types of uh, regardless of how much time that you might be working with the client, there's elements that you can bring in. Um, so these worksheets and many, many, many others are available for free. You will, you can download them, get a copy for yourself. These are public domain and these are also evidence-based. Um, it was originally um, researched and developed with stimulant use disorders decades ago, but at this point it has been studied and evaluated in other substances as, as well the SAMHSA website where you can download this for free. And the, there are there's a manual for the client. There's also resources for families as well. This is a really awesome resource. Um, this is laser focused on substance use. And this is where all of the worksheets from today's manual came from. This manual uh, was originally developed by the Matrix Institute in West LA in collaboration with UCLA that did a lot of research and evaluation on it. It's awesome. Um, there's one other resource that I want to also orient you to, and it is called, it's another publication from SAMHSA. So it's free, it's public domain. 
Um, it's called illness management recovery. It is the difference with illness management recovery is that this one has it's a the focus is on co-occurring disorders. So there's more we it's more about the connection between mental health and substance use that is also a really great resource too. So it helps them to see how their substance use symptoms and their mental health symptoms are they're linked together. They're often um, relapse risk for each other. There's more fundamentals around like what are mental illnesses, what are basic resources to manage your mental illnesses. Um, it's another awesome resource that can be really valuable. I find it the layout of that one a little bit more challenging until you get customed and familiar with it, but it's another awesome tool that's public domain um, from SAMHSA. Uh, it can also be helpful for you too. Um, we were working on a project with CDCR to do training with their mental health providers all throughout the state on this particular manual, the illness management recovery. As you, but as you can see, the manuals are straightforward. It's important to you know, become familiar with them. And the real skill in, in delivering a CBT session comes from that, those balancing acts that we mentioned earlier between being empathetic counselor, being an effective teacher, adhering to the structure in a flexible but structured way, not being too rigid and robotic, but also the not being too passive, being thoughtful about time management, which is not easy to do. Um, this is really where the skill comes in practice. Um, and working with your clinical supervisors to kind of hone those particular skills and working through that. Um, but yeah, thank you all. We really appreciate you taking the time to, to join us. Um, all of your participation, you asked some really awesome questions as well. So we, we really appreciate that. We look forward to seeing you on a future training. Thanks everyone.